Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our February 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Many aspects of human behavior are affected by the changing of the seasons. In certain people, these changes can lead to impairment and a diagnosis of seasonal affective disorder. Previous family-based studies have been shown that seasonality is influenced by genetic factors. To learn more about this relationship, the authors of this article aim to identify specific common genetic variants associated with seasonality. They conducted a population-based study of twins from Australia and a cohort of Amish participants from Pennsylvania. The study tested over two million variants throughout the genome for association with seasonality. However, the authors were unable to identify any individual variants associated with seasonality. In a second objective, the authors investigated genetic variants that predispose to other psychiatric disorders to see if these also influence seasonality. They constructed genetic risk profile scores from a large genome-wide association study for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depressive disorder. They then tested whether these profile scores would explain any variation in seasonality in the Australian sample. Results showed that the schizophrenia and bipolar genetic profiles explained a small but significant proportion of the variance in seasonality in the general population. The authors conclude that further investigation of the links between bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and seasonal affective disorder at both the clinical and molecular levels is warranted and may lead in the long run to studies that uncover novel therapeutic targets. Research for this study included funding by the Australian government, the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Mental Health, and the Netherlands Scientific Organization. A number of factors influence the clinical decision of whether to pursue antidepressant therapy in bipolar depression. In addition to efficacy, clinicians must weigh concerns for safety and, in particular, the adverse event of antidepressant-induced mania. While the latter is not a common phenomenon, it can negatively impact patients and their families. Researchers are keen to identify clinical and genomic risk factors associated with antidepressant-induced mania in the hopes of improving individualized treatment strategies for bipolar depression. In this article, the authors evaluated clinical and genomic risk factors in a group of bipolar patients historically exposed to antidepressant therapy. The study received support from the Marriott Foundation and the Downton family. Study results showed that only bipolar one disorder subtype was associated with antidepressant-induced mania. The S allele of the serotonin transporter was not significantly associated with patients 
who had a manic or hypomanic episode within 60 days of starting or changing their antidepressant dose. In an exploratory analysis, the authors identified a haplotype that appeared to reduce the risk of antidepressant-induced mania. The authors conclude that future pharmacogenetic studies should not only focus on the SLC6A4 promoter variation, but also investigate the role of other variants in the gene. Acamprosate is prescribed throughout the world for the treatment of alcohol dependence. A group from Japan recently conducted a multi-centered, randomized, controlled study of this drug in 327 subjects with alcohol dependence. This study, supported by funding from Nippon Shinyaku Company Limited, was designed to reflect usual clinical practice in Japan. After completing their treatment for withdrawal syndrome, subjects took a daily dose of acamprosate starting from the date of hospital discharge. This regimen was followed by continuous rehabilitation for about two months in inpatient settings. By comparison, in European studies, acamprosate has often been taken on the day of or several days after the treatment of withdrawal syndrome. In the current study, the rates of complete abstinence were 47% in the acamprosate group and 36% in the placebo group, and the difference was statistically significant. The results are similar to those obtained in several European studies, even though the present study differed in terms of study design. The authors therefore conclude that acamprosate can be effectively used in combination with various alcohol dependence programs. Bipolar disorder is associated with increased risk of heart disease. Although the precise causes of this burden are unclear, many of the sources of cardiovascular disease risk, such as hypertension and diabetes, occur in bipolar patients. Many mood-stabilizing medications contribute side effects as well. However, evidence that these medications cause excessive cardiovascular disease is lacking. Most previous studies are cross-sectional or are based on treatment-seeking patients. To address this issue, the authors of this month's CME offering examined data from the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, a large representative sample of the U.S. population. Participants included 5,800 adults with bipolar 1 or 2 disorder or major depressive disorder and 26,000 adults without mood disorders. Over the course of three years, adults with bipolar disorder had more than double the odds of developing new-onset heart disease compared to adults with major depressive disorder. They also had nearly triple the odds of developing new-onset heart disease compared to adults without mood disorders. In addition, adults with bipolar disorder who developed heart disease were about 8 to 10 years younger than adults with major depressive disorder and 14 to 17 years younger than adults without mood disorders who developed heart disease. 
The authors conclude that new onset heart disease is excessively common and occurs many years prematurely among adults with bipolar disorder compared to those with major depressive disorder and to those without mood disorders. Heart disease prevention strategies should be a core component in the treatment of bipolar disorder across the lifespan. The authors received funding support for their work from the National Institutes of Health, the New York State Psychiatric Institute, and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Diagnosis of psychiatric disorders can be variable, perhaps more so when performed by a non-psychiatric physician. Consequently, a confirmatory diagnostic test for depression is warranted. The authors of this article previously described a biomarker panel consisting of nine biomarkers associated with the neurotrophic, metabolic, inflammatory, and HPA axis pathways. This panel, an associated algorithm, has demonstrated clinically useful sensitivity and specificity in differentiating major depressive disorder patients from normal subjects. A further prospective study, supported by Ridge Diagnostics, was recently conducted to determine if adding gender and body mass index to the algorithm would enhance clinical performance. Serum samples were obtained from 68 major depressive disorder patients and from 86 non-depressed subjects. Training set biomarker data were used to develop algorithms including gender and body mass index. An accuracy rate of 94% was observed. This algorithm was applied to an independent test set and the accuracy rate was 91%. Most patients with depression initially present to non-psychiatrists. The authors note that primary care and other physicians may not have the expertise or the time that mental health professionals have to evaluate depression. In such settings, the major depressive disorder score may be especially helpful to establish a diagnosis. Frequent heavy drinking is common in young adults and is associated with adverse consequences. Individual alcohol interventions for young adults primarily include skills building and motivational interviewing approaches, but these measures are less effective for heavy drinkers. A suitable treatment for these young adults may be naltrexone, which is approved by the FDA for treating alcohol dependence. It reduces the frequency of heavy drinking and can be used on an as-needed basis. Reduced drinking rather than abstinence may be a more attractive outcome for this population. This study, which was supported by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, eight-week clinical trial of naltrexone. Drug treatment was augmented by brief motivational counseling. Participants aged 18 to 25 years reported heavy drinking in the prior four weeks. 70 participants took 25 milligrams of naltrexone daily, plus an additional 25 milligrams when they anticipated drinking. Another 70 participants took placebo. Study results indicated that the percentage of heavy drinking days 
and the percentage of abstinent days did not differ significantly between the treatment conditions. However, naltrexone significantly reduced the number of drinks participants consumed per drinking day. It also reduced the percentage of drinking days in which participants' estimated blood alcohol concentrations met the legal limit for drinking and driving. No serious adverse events were reported. The authors note that although the effects were modest, naltrexone reduced the intensity of alcohol consumption. They conclude that the risk-benefit ratio favors offering naltrexone to young adult heavy drinkers to help reduce their drinking. There is growing evidence that bipolar disorder is associated with inflammation, including abnormal levels of C-reactive protein. C-reactive protein is a widely used marker of inflammation and an established risk factor for cardiovascular illness, known to be the leading cause of excess mortality in bipolar disorder. Several studies have reported altered C-reactive protein levels in bipolar disorder patients. Such studies, however, have frequently been limited to small, heterogeneous samples and were inadequately powered to assess the size of association between C-reactive protein levels and the different bipolar disorder mood phases of mania, depression, and euthymia. In a meta-analysis supported by the French Institute of Health and Medical Research, these authors set out to estimate the overall effect size of the association between C-reactive protein levels and bipolar disorder. They also set out to account for subgroup differences, such as mood phases and the use of lithium and antipsychotics. This meta-analysis included 1,618 subjects from 11 studies. Overall, C-reactive protein levels were significantly elevated in bipolar patients compared with controls. That C-reactive protein levels were also significantly higher in manic and euthymic patients supports evidence that a chronic inflammatory state could persist after bipolar disorder remission. This finding suggests that C-reactive protein is a potential state marker as well as a trait marker in bipolar disorder. Meta-regression analysis showed that C-reactive protein levels were unrelated to the use of lithium or antipsychotics. Given that an elevated level of C-reactive protein is a biomarker of low-grade inflammation and a predictor of cardiovascular disease, the authors conclude that measurement of C-reactive protein levels might be relevant to the clinical care of bipolar patients. This article investigates whether initial response to the combination product of buprenorphine and naloxone predicts final 12-week treatment outcome in a prescription opioid-dependent population. In this secondary analysis of data from the Prescription Opioid Addiction Treatment Study supported by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the aim was to define a simple clinical guideline for early evaluation of buprenorphine and alexone efficacy in this population. 
Initial response was defined as weekly opioid use or abstinence during four successive periods. Successful outcomes were defined as either opioid abstinence in the final week and in at least two of the three previous weeks or complete opioid abstinence in the final month of treatment. The association between initial and final response was determined by predictive values representing the percentage of patients with a matched initial and final response. Response in weeks 1 and 2 was much more predictive of outcome than response in week 1 alone. Results also show that the best time to evaluate buprenorphine naloxone response is after two weeks of treatment. Additionally, patients who used opioids in both weeks 1 and 2 were unlikely to have successful 12-week outcomes. In this study, 84% of those who used opioids in the first two weeks had an unsuccessful outcome. 94% failed to achieve complete abstinence in the third and final month of treatment, although patients who are abstinent are not guaranteed a successful outcome. Of those who were abstinent in the first two weeks, 71% had a successful outcome, but only 56% achieved complete final abstinence. The authors conclude that rather than waiting four to eight weeks to determine treatment effectiveness, clinicians can gain valuable information by evaluating buprenorphine naloxone efficacy after two weeks. In the year 2000, the economic burden of depression was estimated at $83 billion in the United States. The authors of this article update these findings and account for costs of comorbid physical and psychiatric disorders. They found that the incremental economic burden of individuals with major depressive disorder, or MDD, increased by 21%, rising from $173 billion in 2005 to $210 billion in 2010. Approximately 45% of the costs were directly related to MDD. 5% were attributed to suicide-related costs, and 50% were attributed to workplace costs. The authors note that only 38% of the total costs were due to MDD itself, as opposed to comorbidities. Indeed, for every dollar spent on costs directly related to MDD in 2010, an additional $1.90 was spent on costs indirectly related to the disorder, that is, suicide-related and workplace costs. Another $4.70 was spent on direct and workplace comorbidity costs incurred by people with MDD. The authors conclude that future research should further analyze these comorbidities and the relative importance of factors contributing to the growing burden of MDD. These factors include population growth, increase in the prevalence of MDD, increase in the treatment costs for each person with MDD, and changes in employment and treatment rates. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia worldwide. Many researchers believe that beta amyloid is related to this disease. 
Two genes play roles in its generation, MIRNA-107 and BACE-1, or BASE-1, messenger RNA. These genes are currently measured in the brain or by lumbar puncture. The authors of this study investigated whether these two chemicals could be measured more conveniently and with less risk by using plasma to confirm whether a patient is at early stage of amnestic mild cognitive impairment. The study received support from the Chinese government. The authors recruited 97 patients with Alzheimer's disease, 116 patients with amnestic cognitive impairment, and 81 healthy controls. The authors measured and examined the plasma MIRNA-107 and BASE-1 RNA of all study subjects. They found that by using a statistical technique called linear discriminant analysis, MIRNA-107 was able to accurately discriminate between patients with amnestic cognitive impairment and healthy controls, with an overall accuracy of 91%. The authors conclude that although their findings need to be confirmed with more patient data, the non-invasive MIRNA-107 expression in plasma can be used as a feasible routine lab procedure to test patients for amnestic mild cognitive impairment. Your adult Hispanic patients face many roadblocks to seeking mental health care. This can be especially true with problems like ADHD, which may go unnoticed or misunderstood due to cultural attitudes, beliefs, or communication problems. Improving access to mental health services and overcoming cultural barriers are critical steps towards making sure every patient receives treatment by providing education, working closely with translators, and recognizing the importance of an individual's unique background and beliefs, clinicians can ensure culturally competent care for all patients. In this commentary, learn how you can create a rapport with your Hispanic patients and help to eliminate barriers to providing effective care. Research papers and research summaries often present results in the form of data accompanied by confidence intervals. However, not all clinicians know how to interpret confidence intervals. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade provides a non-technical, non-mathematical discussion on how to understand and glean information from confidence intervals, including how they are used to assess statistical significance. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read this column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the February issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.